Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friend Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined today by Mr. Terence Corrigan. Terence, how are you? I'm okay, Nicholas. Uh, and also Sarah Gon. Sarah, how are you? I'm fine. I'm also stationary. Even my chair doesn't have wheels today. Good. Yes. Uh, so we're going to start off today with, I think, what is quite a grim topic coming to us from over the weekend um, from overseas, and this is the awful, awful attack in Israel uh, carried out by fighters from Hamas. So on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, when the Israel was surpri uh, surprised by its neighbors in a, in a big attack, um, Hamas launched an operation where they fired about 3,000 rockets, mostly at southern Israel, but also their affiliates appear to have launched a couple at Jerusalem. Uh, and then they... Uh, by land, air, and sea, um, using kind of these weird motorized paragliders, um, boats, and also guys breaching the border fence with Israel, uh, got something like a thousand fighters over the border into Israel um, in a big surprise attack. And once being over, um, they carried out some really awful stuff. Uh, there was a music festival nearby to the border. It was supposed to be some kind of like... Uh, peace festival thing. Looks like about 240 people were murdered there. Um, lots of people suffering horrific crimes, um, lots of hostages taken, uh, lots of the communities on the border with Israel, also, oh, oh, sorry, between Gaza and Israel um, were also attacked. Uh, in many cases, the incidents of taking hostages or um, shooting people was filmed by the Hamas guys. Um, in some cases, they took the phones from the people who they were about to kill or take prisoner um, and then posted on their Facebook accounts or on their Instagram accounts uh, the the things that they were about to do to people. Um, there are still many uh, people taken hostage in Gaza from that. Um, not all of them Israelis, some of them foreigners. I believe there's a Pole, there's some Americans, um, there's some Germans uh, who are both among the dead and among the hostages as well. So in total, at least 700 Israelis have been killed and uh, apparently around more than 400 Palestinians in retaliatory airstrikes that the Israelis carried out in response to this. This has been called a massive intelligence failure on behalf of the Israeli government, which very strictly uh, controls the border with Gaza and uh, monitors it with drones and informants and all sorts of things. Um, a spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Force says, this is our 9-11. They got us. They surprised us. They came fast from many spots, both from the air and the ground and the sea. Um, a Hamas representative in Lebanon um, told media organizations that the attack showed Palestinians had the will to achieve their goals regardless of Israel's military power and capabilities. Uh, there is reporting out now suggesting that this was planned probably months or years ahead of uh, of, of it actually being carried out. Um, there was lots of sophistication in the way the border was breached. And um, there have been, uh, apparently Hamas put out a lot of public messaging and also private messaging that indicated that they were really interested in, at the moment, um, economic concerns about making sure that people in Gaza had access to work permits and things to be able to work in Israel, uninterrupted access to electricity and water. And so the Israelis believed 
that they were not interested in a fight right now. Um, and that appears to have just been a cover for this, uh, creates the element of surprise of this attack. Israeli forces were not in force on the ground. Apparently, there had recently been clashes between settlers on the West, Israeli settlers on the West Bank and Palestinians. And so IDF troops had been reduced in strength on the southern border to go and deal with that. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that Israel is now in a state of war with Hamas. Uh, they have organized at least 300,000 reservists um, who have been called up, and it looks like they're set to enter the Gaza Strip um, any probably any minute now. Uh, there's already been raids and airstrikes all over the Gaza Strip targeting Hamas. The Israelis also say that they have now cut water, power, and supplies into uh, Gaza Strip uh, preceding their attack. Um, to to uh, take out Hamas. Uh, it is already sending shockwaves through the region. There is much uh, to be asked about whether the Islamic Republic of Iran was involved in this uh, at all. If it was, it might cause a bigger conflagration in the region um, because Iran is a big supporter of Hamas. Hezbollah, which is also closely tied to Iran, probably even more closely tied, uh, has so far only in a very limited way intervened in the conflict, firing a few rockets at northern Israel, but appears to have not engaged in a major way, which perhaps suggests that Iran might not have been fully involved in this, although there's reporting in the Wall Street Journal that Iran was involved heavily in this operation. That all remains to be seen. We don't know what the truth is on that one. Um, but uh, an Israeli uh, security source says uh, they caused us to think they wanted money all the time they were involved in exercises and drills until they ran riots. Lots of countries around the world have responded. The U.S. has said that support for Israel was, quote, rock solid and unwavering and ordered U.S. ships and warplanes to move closer to Israel. Iran said that it supported the Palestinians' right to self-defense and warned Israel must be held accountable for entering the region. Senior advisor to Iran's supreme leader called the attack a, quote, proud operation. The chief of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, um, said that the full-scale brutality of the Hamas terror attack leaves us breathless, defenseless people brutally murdered in cold blood on the streets. We stand strong with Israel and its people. Today, the EU and Israeli flags fly side by side. India said that it stood in solidarity with Israel at this difficult hour and was deeply shocked by the news of terrorist attacks in Israel. And South Africa said that, quote, it can no longer be disputed that apartheid South Africa's history has occupied Palestine's reality as a, as a result of the decision by Palestinians to respond to the brutality of settler Israeli apartheid regime is unsurprising. Uh, and it also went on to say that the degenerating South African situation is directly, uh, sorry, the de degenerating security situation is directly linked to the unlawful Israeli occupation. Uh, Sara, let me start with you. Um, what do you make of this whole disaster? Uh, it really seems to me as though tensions around the world continue to rise. We've now got a number of major conflict zones. Um, there's the stuff going on in West Africa following the coups. There's the, uh, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, which has been heating up. There's, of course, the Russia-Ukraine uh, um, uh, Russia war. Uh, which is just continuing to grind along. And now this explosion of violence, the worst that Israel has suffered in probably its entire existence, actually, in terms of just the straight-up civilian death toll in a single day. What do you make of this? Look, I think... Um, I, I think... I don't think things will, will be the same. I think... Um, 
Israel and Netanyahu in particular has adopted a sort of, you know, deal with the rocket attacks and terrorism as it occurs. It quietens down. Egypt negotiates a truce, and they've gone on this on this way. And and they have, as, as I said, they've sort of tried to go the soft the soft route of jobs, water, electricity, etc., because they want to, you know, for the benefit of the of, of people who are quite apart and separate from from Hamas as the as 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 the party that governs them. Um, I think it's interesting because my, my reaction wasn't uh, horror, yes, but shock and surprise, no, because first of all, it is in the nature of Hamas. That is that is how Hamas operates, um, given, the, given the chance. It has been given the chance. Despite being a Sunni Arab organization, it has been heavily supported by Shia Iran, which is, is a is over the last few years been a different development. Hezbollah is is a creation of Iran's. It is a Shia creation of Iran. Syria, which is also in the mix, is a Shia country. So the the, the arming of Islamic Jihad, the arming of uh, of Hamas is relatively new, and it also goes to the confidence Iran has that America's foreign policy is, frankly, risible. Um, and I think you have the problem from a Western point of view of the West seeing... Tending to see a lot of the conflicts in the Middle East from a Western paradigm, not a Middle Eastern paradigm. Um, and I think the problem for Hamas will ultimately be that however much, you know, rape, the murder of civilians, hostage-taking may be in its playbook, it, it's, it, it will not play well in the West. Um, and I think Israel will very likely say, this is it, we're taking out Hamas. Um, I think it's an inevitable consequence. And also, you know, when the Israelis lose lives, partly by their own failures, such as their intelligence failures, as well as the um, conflict that occurred, that has been occurring in the streets of Israel over the democracy of, of Israel, should it, does it or doesn't it change the, the rules under which the Supreme Court operates. Very public, over the in the West, in the media, for for months, um, politicians behaving badly, elite defense units saying they're not going to fight for this government, forgetting, of course, that you never fight for a government, you fight for a country, first and foremost. Suddenly that's been brought home to reality. They weren't there. They took the eye off the ball and they are reaping the dreadful consequences of that. And the problem is, I think, you know, on the one hand, the West will see this as an attack, Hamas will have planned it as a major operation aimed at civilians, not aimed at the, at, at the military. And it's part of that disjuncture between the paradigm of the Middle East and the paradigm of the West that is at play here. And if the rest of the world or much of the world gets drawn into it, it's always been the conflict that would draw people into it. America's America. sending its... Um, uh, aircraft, aircraft carrier fleet from the area into the area. I'm not sure who that's going to frighten. It sure isn't going to frighten Iran because the um, t the, the Americans have adopted a, a principle of appeasement to a regime that in no Western terms behaves tolerably. So, yeah, it's the, more people are going to die and more... Um, Palestinians are going to end up dying and more Israelis are going to end up dying, but the Palestinian rate is going to increase because the, 
the Israelis are going to unleash the, unleash, have unleashed the defense forces and they operate militarily. And they will take out what needs to be taken out to protect Israelis. Protecting civilian life is sacrosanct in Israel. And the consequences are going to flow from that. No, very much so. Um, this is definitely going to get very nasty now. I think uh, that's indisputable uh, for pretty much everyone involved. And it, uh, one does have to wonder what the sort of next stage is. You know, what is Israel going to do? Are they going to actually um, place Gaza under the same kind of occupation they have in the West Bank and return it to the status quo before I think they withdrew unilaterally back in 2005? Um, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, I think this caught the Israeli government just as much by surprise. So I'm, I don't think they necessarily have a full plan for what they're going to do beyond the first sort of military actions to, to strike back on Hamas. Um, Terence, you know, firstly, your thoughts on this, but also your thoughts on South Africa's response to this. You know, officially speaking, South Africa is neutral in this conflict. Uh, we, the, the government often expresses its support for the two-state solution in, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, and yet, when you look at the, uh, the description of, of their, their statement put out on this, it was... It was more aggressive than the Saudi statement. Let's just put it that way um, against mm -hmm. Israel. What, what do you make of this? Well, look, um, this is the kind of conflict that just keeps on giving, if you like. Um, I, you know, I've, I've said, and please don't take this as an endorsement, but as a military operation, you know, the planning and whatever, and it was executed extremely competently. Um, and this is the kind of, the, you know, this is a... a an example of a very, very well executed small, uh, uh, you know, small unit, small unit operation that can cause enormous damage on a um, uh, uh, on a militarily more powerful, um, more powerful antagonist. Uh, you know, they've sort of used those gliders to get over the border, cordoned off the area, blew the fence, used bulldozers, and then sent these dune buggies and whatever to go and to go and carry on. Now, I'm not. This is an endorsement. It's simply, um, you know, saying that there is a huge degree of sophistication here. There's been some mention made of uh, the sort of link to the to, to the Yom Kippur War, 1973, where Israel was also caught off guard in a religious holiday. I think. Um, a more fruitful uh, way of understanding this is to think back to the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968. Um, so it's also after this is a period of the year when fighting wasn't supposed to take place because this was the uh, Lunar New Year and everyone was supposed to go back and sweep their tombs and you know connect with their connect with their families. Um, and uh, areas of the country. That would um, uh, from from which U.S. and South Vietnamese forces had actually been redeployed were struck. Um, the the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Uh, we, we were also don't let Hollywood fool you. The Viet Cong was a highly highly organized you know sort of army. Um, it wasn't just you know people who picked up a you know pitchfork and went you know went out to do battle. Um, they had actually conducted operations specifically to draw American and South Vietnamese forces away from, from, from their targets. So this has been a long time coming. Now, the interesting thing is that within, um, I think it was a month, or actually not even a month, uh, within uh, within days, that, that offensive had been blunted. Uh, within six weeks, it had been completely reversed. And although there were subsidiary um, uh 
phases of the um, uh, of the Tet Offensive. It actually turned out to be a fairly uh, significant win for the U.S. and South Vietnam. But what what they were able to do is to is to inflict a massive political defeat. The idea that uh, what was hitherto inconceivable, and I think this may be what can uh, what comes out of this the uh, the visual of a of a Merkaba tank having been taken out. That is uh, that's a that's a huge propaganda coup. The idea that uh, you know they could go and essentially execute what two hundred and sixty revelers. Um, that uh, there would be Im- there would be images of um, of Israeli police having to fight their way into their police um, uh, 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 police headquarters. You know, all of those tell you know feed feed their own narratives. Now, I've no doubt that uh, in military terms, this is going to turn into turn into a massive defeat for 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 Hamas. But I do think Israel find that you know if they've taken a significant number of civilian hostages, that creates a massive political problem. Um, because I think that that effectively undermines one of the great bargains that the Israeli state has with its people, that uh, you know, no one no one is left behind. You know, they've, they've got enormous enormous lengths to get prisoners home and even just remains. Um, and you know, this says that it, you know that uh, in this particular instance they were unable to 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 um, uh, uh, to safeguard their their civilian population. I think this could quite possibly be the end of um, uh, be the end of, of of Netanyahu, just like the Tet Offensive was in many ways the end of Lyndon Johnson's presidency in America. Um, as for as for foreign reactions, um, interesting. Uh, you know, many of the Arab countries sort of hedge their bets. You know, de-escalation on all sides. Uh, this is all dreadful, passive voice type stuff. You know, I don't really expect anything else there. Um, a country like France, which uh, often takes a more sort of Arabist position, um, and uh, certainly is often critical of of Israel, came out very strongly, in, you know, in favour of Israel. Um, India apparently, for the first time, referred to this as terrorism. Um, they've generally referred to to Hamas as militants, which is, you know, in terms of Israel's uh, international support, a, a, a very interesting development. South Africa, well. Reading that statement, you could almost this. They, this is exactly what they did with Russia and Ukraine. You could almost forget that it was Palestinians this time on Israeli real estate doing this. Um, no, this was this was entirely Israel's fault, and the apartheid settler Israel, complete you know, deep, which which suggests you know completely illegitimate, you know, the Zionist entity. Equally interesting was what the ANC had to say, which seemed to be coming out and saying, "Well, you know, we're actually you know on side with this particular action." That uh, if, if news reports are correct, the spokes their spokes person said, um, "Well, we um, uh, you know the, they had no choice but to escalate." Now, um, escalate might mean you set off a few more limpet mines, you know, to try and take out those Macava tanks. I'm not sure that escalate would, you know, in any sort of decent sense, would mean you know going into a rave and killing 260, you know, um, uh, unarmed young people. But you know, I, it also doesn't surprise me. What I do think it says, though, and I think we should be very concerned about this, is just the lack of intellectual firepower. I don't think that um, that Tabo and Becky's government would have been any, you know, less enthusiastic about the Palestinian cause, but I do think that they would have had the the the, the noose to sort of finesse their response. Um, it should say, well, you know, do we really want to be seen as being on the side of, uh, you know, shooting revelers? Probably not. 
you know, it's the same the same way they managed to say, you know, it wasn't so lacquer to knock down the Twin Towers, but, you know, we also think that America's a warmongering imperialist thing. But the point is that they actually saw that, they, that you know, you had to try, that they, they, there was some diplomacy here. What I see from coming from South Africa is politics of the playground. Um, and it's, be very concerned about that. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, Tara, any any final thoughts on this before we move on? Uh, you're muted, Sara. My hearty dies out of the, your face, etc. Um, it's raised a whole lot of very interesting things. Um, one is that the, the the Arab world's responses, I mean, the UAE, I, I, I can't recall what was the response, but it was very measured, very concerned. Saudi was, you know, if you think in years past, it would have been fire and brimstone. It, was, it wasn't any of that. We left the ANC um, with, with the fire and brimstone. Uh, the intellectual sort of sludge that is the ANC came on board for exactly those reasons. You see, what you do in a situation like this, even if you're the ANC, is you regret the taking of hostages, the killing of civilians, et cetera, et cetera, and then you justify why it happens and why you support it. You don't not mention them at all. You don't show no sympathy at all. It doesn't matter who the combatants are, who the victims are. It's just not how diplomacy works. And what it shows is that there is absolutely no corner of South African politics untouched by the intellectual um, brevity of of the ANC, and the other thing is the whole the the the, the whole thing of the the sort of concept of settlers and you know whether you have uh, justification for being there or not being there, and this is very much a theme of the anti-Israel left, and it strikes me that you know you actually can't pick and choose your settlerism. If the Israelis are settlers, then so is every American who comes whose history. Was you know they come from people who were not born there. In other words, they crossed oceans. Same in same in South America, same in Australia, same in much of Europe, etc. If you didn't originate, if you weren't the Khoisan or you weren't the Inuit or you weren't the Native Americans, you you're a settler. You originate from settlers. So maybe it's time we had that discussion. Right, and that is a huge discussion. That's exactly. That's exactly kind of the sort of menacing underlying thing about this from the way the ANC talks about this. They're sort of, you know, basically endorsing some of this violence. And the justification is, well, the Israelis are settlers. Well, mm. they also call a lot of South African settlers too. Um, Including doesn't really... settlers? Yeah. But uh, in the ANC's view, I mean, you know, everyone on this podcast is a settler. So if violence is justified against Israeli settlers, um, even if they're civilians, then uh, it makes you wonder what the ANC's perspective is on uh, ordinary South Africans who are declared settlers by them. But anyway, um, let us move on. Let us, let's discuss the, the, the continue discussing the intellectual sludge that is the ANC sort of um, uh, ambit at the moment uh, by talking about the Central Committee meeting of the South African Communist Party, which was recently held. Uh, the South African Communist Party held a three-day Central Committee meeting uh, that ended, I think, on Sunday, and it was called to discuss the SACP's party's position ahead of the election next year, as well as what the South African Communist Party described as the government's austerity measures and other neoliberal policies. 
So uh, they said that they want to, quote unquote, reconfigure their alliance with the ANC, which is a thing they do every single election, looking like they might stand as an independent party and they're not actually doing it. Their general secretary said that the real problems in South Africa are not caused by you know, all of the things that we talk about, bad policy, misgovernment, all these sort of things. No, no, the real problem is that there has been, quote, a lack of respect for the ANC's political mandate and that we have problems in South Africa because the ANC's previous election manifestos were not fully implemented uh, after the past elections. Uh, he said the problem is exacerbated by private business, which has opened the floodgates of corruption in the country. And uh, he recently, he, he talked about a recent visit by members of the ANC and the South African Communist Party to China for political school. And he implored his comrades to learn from their ally, the Communist Party of China. He says, in China, government plans are not changed willy-nilly by government ministers like in South Africa. Um, Terence, what do you make of this? Just saying, respect my authority! Um, not really. Uh, uh, um, we, we, where does one start? Okay, yes, the 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 Communist Party of China may not change all of its policies like overnight. For instance, uh, they have been on 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 the and concentration camps for a long time. They don't they're not backing away from that one. Um, but you know, let's let, let's let's give our our Chinese communist friends due credit that they decided that this whole great leap forward Mao revolution destroy the world, you know, to create a new one wasn't such a great thing. So they said, well, you know, let's like make some money. Um, you know, uh, they, they, there was a, there was a joke I once heard about the Chinese business delegation that came and wondered why we had so many strikes. And, uh, you know, they said, look in China, we don't have to, you know, you guys obviously have to contend with communists. We don't. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, this is this you know i'm 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 afraid one of one of the issues that could, that complicates any kind of move towards a sustainable resolution in the middle east is the is is the cloying role of relig of politicized religion um and i was saying just before the show that you know one thing that that you know the vietnamese and the chinese had was maybe they their religion was political and you know therefore didn't reference a higher power and they were able to step away from it to some extent I think in South Africa, we still have people whose religious and ideological convictions function very much like a, um, uh, uh, like a supernatural religion. And I think we mm. see, we, we, you know, we see it, we see it on display and, you know, if only we worshiped harder at the shrine of, you know, uh, ANC, um, national democratic revolution, you know, it would, it would be, it would be the thing that would make the thing great again. <laughs> Sarah, what do you make of all this? I mean, <laughs> the SACP is in years past was described as a sort of like intellectual brain trust of the ANC, no. and yet you you see the <laughs> you see you see what they're coming out with now, and it's just it's just of such low caliber. Well, I'm going to go with um, with the suggestion hashtag intellectual sludge. <laughs> all right, let's move on. Terrifying. <laughs> Um, all right, let's move, let's move on very briefly to our last story because this is actually quite an interesting one and, and uh, I just want to talk about it recently. So, uh, so there's this survey um, done of the power of brands um, in the, across South Africa. It looks at about a 1,000 brands 
uh, with a representative sample of 12,500 South Africans. Uh, this is representative of South Africans on a provincial racial gender language level. And this survey found that the Springboks are in an excellent position with South Africans, that the brand of the Springboks is extremely strong. Um, out of the thousand brands, the Springboks are rated seventh in leadership, 13th in most energetic, 17th in most dynamic, 16th in most progressive, 18th in most rugged, um, and the 34th most South African brand uh, uh, surveyed. Um, it's got uh, this very high approval amongst South Africans in general. And also, interestingly, um, when they compared the brands, and so by brand, they define it as basically what people associate, what sort of words and ideas people associate with a person or a product or a company. Um, when they looked at the brands of politicians, politicians tended to rate among the lowest in the country in general. And uh, when uh, uh, Springbok captain Sia Colisi's brand was plotted against the EFF's Julius Malema and President Sabrina Forza, Colisi's brand came out much, much stronger. In fact, his personal brand um, was seen as one of the top quality brands, the top leadership brand, the most down-to-earth brand, the kindest, the friendliest, the second toughest, the sixth most charming, the, 35, the 30, 35th most intellectual, the 36th most energetic. Uh, and uh, in contrast to how politicians were described, which is the people answering the survey described them as uh, politicians are fatigued and arrogant. So, Sarah, I mean, this didn't ask the question of whether you would vote for President Sia Colisi, but it kind of seems as though people would at least, when you ask their gut feeling, would be willing to vote for Sia, President Sia Colisi over uh, all of our political figures. And isn't that interesting? I think it's fascinating. And I'm going to create a new hashtag, Genius of Rossi Erasmus. Um, because... <laughs> yes. You know, everyone knows the sort of PR problems that the Springboks have faced since uh, 1994. And what he has been done is been instrumental in literally rebranding. But it's not just rebranding. It's it's rebranding with – it's not just image. It is all about – there's a lot of image in it. There's a lot of PR in it. But underneath that is the nous and hard work – that goes into creating a team led by Sia Colisi that just, it's in, in the face of everything that's sludgy and rotten in the society, whether we win the World Cup or not is not as relevant as the fact that we took part and we took part in a way with, that we did. It's a multiracial team. It's probably the most, pardon, the most diverse looking team the most diverse team in, in the world, of, of, of the World Cup. Um, so I think it's branding, it's, it is branding genius, and I do mean that with all due respect. I think it's, it shows the political classes that, that, they, that with the right sort of branding genius, they are left standing, barely standing, um, very, very smart, and, and kudos to having been able to turn around an entity like the Springboks, still called the Springboks. Exactly. I think it's really a great South African success story when, when you look at this, the way that the Springboks, you know, rugby was seen as this kind of like white thing and it was associated with apartheid and stuff like that. And yet it really is now in many ways 
according to this, the most popular of our sports in people's eyes. When people, uh, not necessarily in um, what people watch, but it's the most popular in what people have positive associations with. The, the survey also looked at our cricket and rugby teams and, sorry, our cricket and soccer teams, and they found them to just not really be that great um, in people's eyes. And like you say, you know, Rossi Erasmus has been a, a big part of, of building up this brand identity that really um, brings South Africans together and is excellent at the same time, right? We are one of the best teams in the world. And regardless of what we how we do in the World Cup, we will. it's clear that we're going to maintain that spot at least for a while to come. Uh, and that really is, I think, the essence of of the South African of of, a, of what can make a great South African success story. You've got this sort of um, brand and organization built on merit, built on uh, co collaboration of people from all over the country, and they've come together to to make this thing that works really well. And it's also popular with South Africans from all racial groups and all uh, economic groups as well. Um, Terence, your final thoughts on this. No, I just uh, um, uh, I second you there. You know, like I don't think that anybody, apart from Trevor Manuel in the early days, has ever has ever said, you know, wow, you know, like we might have lost, but our team, that team was so beautifully diverse. You know, yeah, yeah, it's taken a while, um, but uh, yeah, you know, when you have um, when you have little barefoot Afrikaans kids and you know, Posmos Barahu, like want to be like Sia Khaleesi, you know that this isn't the society it was thirty years ago. Um, you know, look, but then, you know, like as, 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 as regular viewers in the show will know, I'm the ultimate couch potato. So, you know, you'd probably have to show me a picture of Sia Khaleesi so I can identify. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, everyone, for watching. Uh, we hope that you found the show informative and we will be back tomorrow with Daily Friend Wrap. Cheers, everyone. Mm -hmm.